Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Keo McClear is the author of Unearthing, a story of tangled love and family secrets. She was born in London, England, and moved to Toronto at the age of four. Her most recent book, Birds, Art, Life, was published in seven territories and became a Canadian number one bestseller. She received a PhD from York University in the environmental humanities. Her short fiction, essays, and art criticism have been published in Orion Magazine, Asia Art Pacific, Lit Hub, Brick, The Millions, The Guardian, Shampala Sun, The Globe, and Mail, Toronto, among other publications. She is also a children's author, editor, and teacher. Welcome, Keo. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your absolutely beautiful memoir that made me cry called Unearthing, A Story of Tangled Love and Family Secrets. This is really, really great. <laughs> Thank you, Zibby. So nice to be here. Can you tell listeners 
a bit about what your book is about, how you structured it the way that you did, which was so interesting, just all the interesting things. And then we can dive deep into different parts. Absolutely. So it's kind of a hybrid memoir. I've heard it described as a kind of detective story, a family memoir, a personal botanical history. But essentially the story follows a journey that that happened. It began in 2019 when I did a DNA test and discovered that my father, who had died just three months previously, wasn't biologically related to me. And we were really close. So this was a bit of a shocker. And I actually had no uh, suspicions whatsoever. I was doing the, the test for entirely different reasons. And so the book really traces the journey of what happened. I mean, I enlisted strangers to help me kind of uncover what happened piece by piece. And part of what's kind of odd about the story is that it really is a mystery that could have been cracked by someone I see almost every day, uh, namely my mother. And I don't think that's a big spoiler. And she's a really kind of dynamic, charged, electrical kind of character in my life. And she's somebody who's kind of both fascinated and vexed to me my entire life. So it kind of follows that journey and it takes place over the course of a year or so. And it's structured around the seasons and it's actually structured around what are called um, small seasons in Japanese. So I really wanted to tell the story against kind of shifting kind of a world that was kind of constantly changing, you know, in, in some ways to kind of evoke this sense that the climate was kind of dramatically different during that period of time when I was unearthing this story, but also to kind of get a sense of the kind of landscape as a protagonist. One of the things I realized was that I kind of overlooked my mother in the kind of story of my life, that she wasn't like the the big protagonist. And so I was really interested in other things that we kind of underestimate in the world. So amazing. I mean, in your search at the beginning, which starts off for your father, it then sort of delves deep into investigating all these things about your mom and her life and memories and what does memory mean? And then, you know, I don't think I can delete this, but I don't think it's a spoiler to talk about her dementia. Is that okay to discuss? Big part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. So even as you write through that and deal with her memory fragments, and it's like, we are with you trying to figure out what she is telling the truth whatever that is about and what, what is fiction, what is lie? Like, and then you are left to discover alongside her, what you believe and what you don't. And it's a sort of found family. And I don't know, it was really beautiful and very original. Tell me a little bit about the style, because one thing that you do throughout the book is you have like a sentence that gets repeated at the beginning of many sections. And then you switch the sentence up to a different sentence, usually parts about your being a daughter and your relationship to your mother, but you do it in such a poetic way in the repetition. Just tell me more about that. It probably has a name of a literary device that I don't know what it is <laughs> or something, but. A really good question. So, I mean, I, I write books for children. So I'm really interested in the idea of refrain and repetition and how that can kind of create this mesmerism for the reader. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it was just I was repeating this sentence because I was kind of finding, trying to find a reestablish a pattern to my life and kind of finding grounding again. And so in some ways it became almost like a mantra, like kind of repeating, I am the daughter of this parent. I am a daughter of this parent. And and they were changing. And so my relationship as a daughter, my whole kind of view of daughterhood was changing. It was really kind of a shifting sands feeling because both my parents at different stages developed dementia. I mean, so much of this book is about memory. And I think we're kind of under the misapprehension that when we uncover stories that they kind of arise, you know, like almost like an archaeological dig, the memories come up intact and all we have to do is kind of brush them off 
and then like they're there. But what I discovered, and I kind of know this intuitively, is that our memories are always shifting anyway at the best of times. Mm-hmm. And then you encounter a person who you're relying on to tell you a story who's in the stages of dementia, early stages of dementia, then like there's, you know, there's no ground, literally, like everything's constantly changing. And there's, you know, every time I'd have a version of the story, my mother would kind of rewrite it or kind of reject the version she'd said. And so it became really a lot about storytelling in some ways and the kind of impossibility of it. It's crazy. My my dad, my brother and I recently, there was a, a, an almost accident we were in and all three of us like have totally different memories of it, including like who was driving the car. I'm like, how is this possible? And what does this mean about the actual moment? Like if none of us remember it and it did happen, but then just floated away. Do you know, like what is the truth, so to speak? Not that this is an important thing the way your family history is, but just these moments as we all age and forget and you know, what does it mean within the family when you have situations that everybody has a different view on, including yourself at different times of the day? And even at one point you put in like, are you aware now that like your interpretation of events is like being incorporated into somebody else's memory about them and folded in like that, which is also so interesting. No, I mean, that story you told about the car accident, I mean, it's, I'm sorry that happened, but I think about that all the time. Like as storytellers, I think we get tied to this idea of accuracy and that that kind of worrying about accuracy is the kind of only point of accountability for a story kind of shortchanges our storytelling sometimes. I I realize that there's another kind of fidelity, which is kind of maybe an emotional truth. Mm -hmm. And so I try to make that compass for the story. And so actually there's a, I think there's a shift in the book. Like in the beginning, I'm very much the reporter's daughter. My dad was a war reporter. And so I kind of go in, I'm feeling really unsettled. And I think if I ask everyone questions, if I go at this from every angle, then maybe I can make sense of this thing that feels kind of senseless in mm-hmm. some ways. So I really do that. Like I go in with this like complete like fervor for the truth. And I'm like really interrogative when it comes to my mother to the point where she's just shutting down. And then there's a point where she gets the diagnosis of dementia and suddenly all her shifting memories are kind of cast in this new light. And I think at that point, the story kind of loosens. And I realized that this kind of desire on my part for this accurate retelling isn't going to happen. So maybe I can approach a different way. And it really changed at that point for me. Like it really, it felt like a kind of loosening also in my relationship with my mom in some ways. Oh my gosh. When I got to the end and you included, those were her drawings, right? Were they hers or yours? Mine actually, but I, you know, at some point I really want to do something with her drawings. They're amazing. I have boxes of that. Because I thought what you were saying, I mean, it's equally beautiful that they're yours. I thought that when you compared it to the viral video of the dancer in the wheelchair with dementia, that, you know, we still have access to all these things that we can't explain why or how, and it just comes out. And then after you kind of ended it and with, I had like tears in my eyes and then I was going through all the pictures. I was like, oh my gosh, maybe these are the moms and maybe you saved your moms and put them in there. But anyway, either way, it's beautiful. It's the only months for sure. You know, those were lino cuts. So, I mean, I don't know, like I had so much, I had all this excess energy and this kind of, I was anticipating finding out more. I was kind of, I had a search angel helping me try to figure out my folio lines. And every day, like I had this kind of adrenaline and I didn't know where to put it. So I started doing this garden, which I talk about in the book, but I also started carving. Like literally, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was like this kind of unearthing of images through lino cut and just like carving and carving. And it was really kind of distill myself in some way. And so that's what's in the book, these kind of carvings that I did. 
Interesting. You also talk about your sons throughout the book and you take us in motherhood, but only sort of, I want to say gently, sort of like on the periphery, right? It's not about your relationship or even your feelings of being a mom, but it's it's as you unearth all these things about your family, you'll bring them in as sort of supporting characters. Like, and then I told my sons and then I ran off to my sons again, you know, and then, you know, this son, and you give us little pieces of what they're like, like little bits of their sleep patterns or like this one's like this. And I'm curious how you thought about sort of the role of your sons in this book. Yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, they're very much, they play that role in my life. I mean, they're definitely like a counterpoint. They're really funny and they're really musical. And I mean, I guess tonally for the story, they kind of added a certain dynamic, which I really liked, like the kind of note of levity. And and also, I mean, part of the story is not just about like what we inherit, it's about what we carry forward. So I felt like my sons were really important in the book because in some ways I'm telling the story for them. I mean, whether or not they read it is another matter, but just, I feel like in some ways when we're telling family stories, we're kind of unspooling things into the future. And what I really wanted to do with this story was kind of untangle all these kind of lies and secrecy and secrecy and like all the shame that had kind of been in the family and kind of, and, and like kind of opacity or like just kind of cloudiness and the, and all this, these kind of clogged communication channels in the family and kind of unspool that in a way where my kids wouldn't have to deal with that anymore. Like I felt like it was carried through generations in my family and I wanted to kind of make them present in the book, but I was kind of careful because I do feel like I don't want to put them in a book that kind of jeopardizes their privacy in any way. So they're kind of little touches here and there. Yeah. I love that. You also have this even more than you expected, perhaps the role of Judaism and where that fits in with love and Judaism and culture. And tell me a little bit about that and how you kind of integrated all of that even now. Yeah, good question. I think that's ever evolving, but like, I mean, we have a kind of secular Jewish home because my partner's Jewish and my kids were both, they had a B'nai Mitzvah and like everything. So we've had all the high holidays and stuff. So as you discover more and more things about your family life and everything and your own husband being Jewish and having sort of the search for meaning and spirituality as your mother is you know, aging and set, you know, all of that, you have this piece of religion that's sort of floating in the <laughs> in the ground or one of the roots essentially of the plants of life. And I was just wondering how you think about that now that the book is sort of out there now that we all know like what happens towards the end, just has it changed? Has your relationship with that faith in life changed at all? Or did it just stay the same? Um, in some ways it stayed the same. I think that one of the things I love, I've always loved about certain aspects of Judaism is the idea of welcoming the stranger. Mm-hmm. So one thing that happened was because I was so uncertain when I got my DNA results was that I uploaded them to another site and then I did a second DNA test. So as a result, every day I get little pings in my inbox saying that I have a new DNA relative or a new DNA match. And I used to look at them every day and now I've stopped looking at them. I I respond to messages when I get them, but so I might have another half sibling. I might have a first cousin. And so I've kind of thought of it as a thought experiment, like in the Jewish sense of welcoming the stranger. Like what if everybody out there was a, a, you know, a half sibling or a cousin, like how would we treat the world differently? And I know this sounds kind of sappy and and stuff, but I think about, you know, for example, on Passover, welcoming Elijah or, you know, on I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly, but the idea that you have this kind of welcoming and inclusive sense of belonging. And so I think that's what I really love about, I mean, the, the faith and the tradition, the way I've seen it practiced. 
And I really wanted this book to be about a kind of open and a wider sense of kinship. Yes. So it really resonated with aspects of Judaism and this idea that it's kind of like you pitch a large tent and you invite strangers in and you have a, a house with like one wall that's open so people can come and visit. I love that idea of kinship. Like I didn't want this to be a story about a DNA surprise that then became another story about how I found my true family and this is my biological family. I really didn't want to repeat that narrative. Well, it was funny because when I had read about, I don't know, a third of it, I was like, oh, wait, this is, but this is not what's going to be in the rest of this book. <laughs> like, where's, where are we going? Like, what is, what's going to happen? And it was so interesting. I mean, you even reflect on sort of what the meaning of family is. I had dog-eared a bunch of pages about even like the role of family and, oh, and then I wanted to ask you about, maybe you don't want to talk about this because this comes later. I'm trying not to give things away because I feel like I'm talking about this as if it's a novel. Usually with memoir, I'm just like, here's what we're going to talk, you know, like, let's just delve in. But because it was so, you know, at times, I don't know, I just don't want to go there necessarily. But you do talk about your relationship with an unnamed, but clearly we know who it is, very famous person who ends up having a very intimate relationship with your mother. And it was mind blowing, actually, that that whole thing even happened. Can you talk about that? Or should we just leave it for the reader to discover? Maybe we'll leave it for the reader to discover. But I have to say, I mean, that person has been... Important to me, like just as a writer, as an artist, like I, I find her incredibly inspiring. And one thing I really want to bring into the book as well was the idea of artistic ancestry. That I owe a debt as a writer to all these people who came before me, and in some ways, those are my kin. Like I love my bookshelves is my book kin, and I find like a lot of readers feel that way too. That they're like, you know, their books are their like siblings or family members. So book kin, I like that. That's so nice. Yeah, that's beautiful. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The role, obviously, of 
nature and the world and roots and flower. You know, you start off by going through the the morning ritual for your father by going to this greenhouse and sort of communing with the plants, if you will, as you work your way through that terrible time. And then as you write, everything becomes, you know, completely interwoven with different analogies and moments and interactions with the natural world. Tell me a little bit about that. And also even from a writing standpoint, how how that became the major, like you could have told the story and not had that element, right? But you combined two kind of different threads. So just tell me about that. Yeah. <laughs> a really great question. Well, I mean, one of the things that happened was that, I mean, there were two things. There was an instinct to go to bound because everything felt like it was kind of turning and revolving. And I really wanted to put my hands in the earth. And the other thing was that I'm not a fancy gardener. Like I'm a terrible gardener actually. And I've, I'm a notorious plant killer. And so it was kind of counterintuitive in certain ways, but I also knew that I needed to meet my mother on her own terms in a weird way. And my mother was an avid gardener and she's so, I mean, she's still like, there's a lot of things that have gone with the dementia, but she's incredibly, she remembers how to take care of plants and she remembers like what plant names are. And, and so I really wanted to kind of connect with her on a certain level because there's a kind of impasse where I was being the interrogator and she was kind of withholding, or, or I thought she was withholding information that I wanted. And it just became a different way of approaching each other. And the garden became a meeting place. And so it was more of a kind of figurative third space for us to kind of meet where it wasn't embattled. We weren't in combat, emotional combat. Like we, we, you know, I don't know if you know Vivian Gornick's book, Fierce Attachments, but we were very much that mother and daughter. And so we were kind of caught in this narrative and so I felt like the garden was a kind of way of reconnecting with her and also thinking about cultural transmission because I lost um, my first language, Japanese, and I couldn't, re- I tried to relearn it, didn't work. And so the garden became another language for us. So really it was kind of that desire to connect with her. Oh, that's so beautiful. You wrote also about sort of being in in this limbo of being part Japanese, part not Japanese, how you don't feel sort of accepted necessarily by either community, not quite being enough for either space um, and how that limbo makes you feel. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I actually kind of like that limbo. I think it's like been for me a fertile space because I've, I don't know, I think there's a writer disposition where you're kind of on the outside looking in. And so you're kind of refusing the call to belong on other people's terms. And it's also made me question like things like the genealogical imagination, like the idea that this is who we are, this is what's ours, this is us and this them, because I've always been kind of on the border. I've never really trusted that idea. And so, I don't know, I feel like I'm just at home with people who feel kind of, you know, in a middle space between things. And I feel like I've had the advantage of being part of a place or a space where there was a constant conversation. Mm -hmm. I also saw fault lines. Like I talk about this in the book that my mother was treated very differently and kind of experienced certain wounds around racism that obviously my father didn't experience. And so I saw that the world was really kind of bifurcated at times. So that kind of brought that knowledge home, you know, like literally home. It was great when you described 
how you saw your mother so differently in Japan, like when she went back and her just command of the place. I remember once, I'm not, I don't know why I keep talking about my own family, but I feel like this book is one of those books that makes you sort of reflect on your own relationships and history and whatever. But I remember visiting my brother at college and he went to Penn and I had been to Philadelphia just like a handful of times. But when I went to visit him, like I was astounded that he knew so well how to drive me everywhere. And he, I'm like, how? how? Like we were on the same thing and like, look at you go. You're like, you know exactly what you're doing with a complete authority in this area. And I felt like you sitting, like walking beside your mom as she just like goes throughout and just, it's like, well, where did this person come from? You know, where did this side spring from? Yeah. Like, I mean, that kind of touches on something that I, I realized, which is that I, I knew an artist in Melbourne who was amazing and he would draw the same thing over and over again. And he said the reason he did it was to get past his idea of the thing. So he might draw a tree because he had an idea of what a tree was and what it looked like. And that the longer he drew it, the more it kind of fell apart. It started to dissolve and his understanding of it changed and shifted. And he said the intimacy was the ability to kind of not know something or not be certain about what something was. And I think it's really hard to see the people in our family that we kind of think we know. And we, we assume that we have every angle on them. And then something changes like you, you know, your, your brother, you know, you see him, you see him kind of in his element, my mother in Japan, like, and suddenly you have a whole other angle on them and you realize that, you know, only a fraction of who they are, or you see like a very limited kind of glimpse of that, that person. And it's like, it's kind of amazing. I mean, it can be kind of, uh, I think for children, when they see their parents in that way, it can be a little bit unsettling, but I kind of love that idea. And I think it's why I realized that biography is kind of a doubtful enterprise because you can never nail people down. Like you can never get a fix on them. They're always changing and the context will determine who they are as well. So. Very true. I just read this other memoir um, called the rye bread marriage, which is totally different, but at the end there's a, a, a line that stuck with me about how, you know, the only thing that's consistent you know, after their 39 years of marriage is as they look on with to their like grown children is just how much everything is going to constantly be changing. And I feel like that has such echo effects with how you view your family and everything is like that. It's only a glimpse. Like it's like we're pausing the frame essentially is all we can. That's all we can really do is pause and describe the frame. And then we unpause and who knows. Exactly. Yeah. I, I have writing students. So I say it's like a moment of capture. It's like taking like a freeze frame. Yeah. And this well, especially, I mean, obviously in fiction, you can kind of put your characters away, but in memoir, the characters are still evolving and changing. And, you know, I think Maggie Nelson says that eventually you make a truce with time mm-hmm. and you decide that you're going to hand your manuscript in. And, but this yeah. story is amazing, so. It actually also reminded me of Maggie Smith's latest book, You Can Make This Place Beautiful. Did you read that? I such good things. I mean, it's not similar, but there's something in the poetry of both books, the style of writing. I'm I'm wondering too about your path to publication and like what that was like. I know sometimes in publishing, there's an urge to like make things very clearly delineated, right? Like is, what is this about or where does this fall and da, da, da. And your this book is beautiful, absolutely beautiful and includes so many different elements, which is fabulous. But so I'm just curious, like what that whole thing, what that was like. And if you had written the whole book when you sold it and your role with your editor. Just like, tell me about that whole. Yeah, that's a, a good question. I mean, I, I did write the whole thing before I sold it. And I worked uh, with an editor I worked with on my last book, mm-hmm. Kathy um, Belden at Scribner, who's just fantastic. And 
was so supportive and just understands that I kind of write this hybrid form of memoir that kind of, I I mean, it's funny because I don't, I buy books all over the map and I have a friend who runs a bookshop in Toronto who said that he'd like to have one category for books and he'd call it floop and everything would fit in it because he finds that, you know, the idea of categories for books can be like kind of silo them in certain ways. I mean, I guess this can be shelved in memoir, can be shelved in I don't know. There's probably like a category called personal growth or (laughs) that I don't think of this book as having like that kind of grand epiphany that a lot of those books around personal growth have. But I usually write the whole thing and then kind of figure out what it is afterwards. I just find that I need to go kind of subterranean and kind of work quietly. But the one thing that did happen with this publication is that all the kind of shrieking demons I had in my head that I kind of tamped down as I was writing came out and kind of danced on my brain stage when the book was like sent off to kind of be printed, it was in yeah. that moment the anxieties kind of arose. And and they were really related to this idea of disclosure. And I think that probably anybody who's writing about family will relate to this, but it's like, how much do you tell? How much do you withhold? Um, in my case, I'd shared facts that like people wanted to keep hidden for a very long time. And so I had to grapple with what that meant. And also you know, I didn't do it with a sense of swagger. Like I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to just blow the lid off this kind of box. It was very much like I had a sense of that there were things that I would put in and things that I would keep out. But I also push back. There are a few moments in the book you probably noticed where I was kind of pushing back when somebody was saying, you're not going to write about this, right? And you're like, no, of course not. And I'm like, oh no, but I'm reading it right now. (laughs) So, I mean, I did that again. Like I did that with a sense that there were certain things I didn't, I, I thought that they needed to be unconcealed mm-hmm. and I didn't see any point to keeping them like kind of keeping the secret any longer. I felt like they were hangover from, you know, a generation before when maybe there were different codes around what was shameful, you know, yeah. and what was speakable. And I felt like that changed. Even when you say that, you know, your father was a very private person, like he, and yet here we are knowing all every single thing you, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's amazing. So you had had a number one bestseller in Canada already when you went to write this book. I'm glad that the demons were gone when you sat down to write it. But did you question where what your next project would be or did it just, this all was happening in real life and you're like, I have to just write about this? Yeah, this was really happening in real life. It was, I couldn't, it was like the white elephant in the room. I couldn't yeah. not write about it. I mean, and, you know, writing is how I experience my experience in a weird way. Like, yep. kind of how I things. And so, I really felt like I was kind of metabolizing things and things were churning and I was writing. I didn't know that it would all go into this book, but I was writing the whole time and it actually really helped because I kind of figured out, you know, there is something to be said for writing, but I also realized at a certain point, there's a kind of decorum to craft. So I'm also a little suspicious of that. So when the story, when I felt it was becoming too tidy and I was trying to tidy it up for the reader, I would feel kind of unsettled, you know, because I realized that it was, I don't want to sell a lie. You know, there's that the beautiful opening for Kiese Lehman's book. Like, you know, there's certain kind of conventions around memoir that kind of get imposed on a writer. And so I really wanted to kind of, I didn't want my story to kind of get jammed into any convention where I felt like I was kind of sealing it up and making it seem kind of more complete than it actually was. So that was kind of, I mean, I, that's maybe I'm not expressing it that well, but that was kind of the struggle in write, the writing. Amazing. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Well, I guess my, the thing that's helped me so much is to stay, is to be a reader, mm-hmm. to be a reader, also to look to kind of adjacent art practices. I really think I've learned as much about writing from re- reading books as I have from like dance and film 
I just gave a talk on comics last week. Like I've learned so much from like Peanuts and Charles Schultz and like about how to create a narrative edge. And like, there's just so much you can learn from other practices. Um, Twyla Tharp's book on on dance is great in terms of persistence and habit. There's a book with Walter Murch and Michael Ondaatje on film. That's like a great book on editing. So don't just kind of look in your, don't just stay in your own lane, kind of look at what other people are doing. I love that. So great. Well, I'm so excited for your book to come out. So great. I can't wait to hear everybody reading it and talking about it. I feel like I want to go talk to a lot of people about it now, but you know what I mean? Because like, uh, there's so much to discuss. But anyway, congratulations. And thank you for sharing so much about your 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 story and yourself with the world. Thank you, Zippy. What a pleasure. Okay. All right. Well, have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.